Let's take our Bibles this morning to the book of Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to continue in the series in Philippians, the theme of which is joy through the mind of Christ. And we find pretty much an impossibility I see in verses 1, 2, and 3, and verse number 4 as well. Very challenging passage of Scripture. We see in verse number 1 some resources that have been made ours in order to fulfill the phrase in verse 2. Verse 2 says, Fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded. But God always gives His provision with His command. In fact, His provision is available before the command. He never asks us to do something that He does not enable us to do. And here is the resources. Verse 1, If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill you my joy. Have we received consolation in Christ? If you're saved, you can say yes. Have you felt the comfort of his love? If you've been saved, you can nod in the affirmative. Have, have you fellowshiped with the Spirit of God? Have you enjoyed being in the harness with the Spirit of God? Have you felt when you've read the Bible that what the Spirit of God wrote down, you agree with? If you have, then you have the resources for what he's going to ask us to do. Do you have, do you have any bowels and mercies? Now, use the term bowels today, and it's, you know, it kind of derails all of our minds. But the truth is, the Scripture uses it as the innermost being, and, and, and the scientists are catching up. They're realizing that there is a direct connection between the mind and the gut. There are a lot of things that happen there between us, uh, between those two uh, parts of us. And, and it's not that everything is done in the mind and that the rest of it is all metaphorical. No, when you say, I, you know, I have butterflies in my stomach, then you understand how uh, the innermost being, physiolo physiologically, our physiology is also connected with our theology in some ways. It's a wild thing. In other words, the whole man, body, soul, and spirit, is affected and is supposed to be under the control of the Spirit of God. So it's a, it's a really mind-blowing idea. But he said, because you have this, and we would think, I mean, he's, he's saying it in a kind way. If this is true, if this is true, then he gives us a command. Fulfill you my joy. I want you to fill up my joy all the way to the top. The Apostle Paul is the writer, we know. And so he's, we're thinking from a human standpoint, make the Apostle Paul happy. Here's the problem for you and I today. Apostle Paul's not here anymore. Where is he? He's in heaven. We understand that the Apostle Paul was just the pen, so to speak. The Holy Spirit was the author. God himself is saying, fulfill my joy. I want you to take my cup of joy and I want you to fill it all the way to the top. You ever see a cup with that at the very top? It looks like the, the liquid is actually coming out of it and it's not. It's almost spilling out, but it's not. That's what the Lord, he, who? Who is supposed to be that? Well, I mean, obviously God wants to make me happy, amen? Well, of course he does, but have we ever thought about making God happy? 
The Lord is saying, make me as joyful as I can be. If you were to stop and think about it, what would make God full of joy? We don't think God wants anything or needs anything. But he says here, fulfill ye my joy. I want my joy to be full. You say, is it possible for God to have less than a full tank of joy? I think so. Hey, he said, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. And being grieved is a far is a fur piece from being full of joy. And so it is possible for you and I to make, uh, to make God happy, to make God joyful. God is not just a distant being who inscrutably directs the affairs of the world through a great mirror. And if you ever were able to get the mirror out of the way, you'd see nothing there because God is invisible. Keep in mind that to the naked eye, God is invisible. God is a spirit. That means no man can see him with the natural eye. But I guarantee you that God has a form. If you could live in the spirit realm, if you could peel back, you would see there's God sitting on his throne. And he is saying, Christian, make me happy. You know, a lot of your problems in your life would be completely removed, or at least, at the very least, they would be lessened if you'd stop focusing on making yourself happy. Stop being frustrated that other people aren't making you happy. And you could focus on making him happy. You and I were created for the pleasure of God. Revelation 4.11. For thy pleasure they are and were created. If you think back on your, this past week, what a graveyard of buried hopes it is. But why? You know, a lot of it was probably spent trying to, trying to say, I've got to figure out how to get some serenity. I've got to see if they've got any peace available on Amazon, maybe. Or, you know, I've got I to download it somewhere. I've got to buy something. I've got to go. So I could just get out of Toledo. Man, that would make us all happy, wouldn't it? We can just get out of here. I just need to be gone. Get one of the, if I could fly away and be in the wilderness for a while, the psalmist said that. But a lot of that is saying the main goal of my existence is for me to be happy. If you could turn that around and say, no, the main reason for my existence is for God to be happy. It takes a burden off of your shoulders. Because how many realize you can try to make your two- or three-year-old happy, and you buy her everything that she wants, and she still ain't going to be happy? Why? It's human nature. We're more sophisticated as adults, but it's still the same thing. You went on that amazing trip. You bought that car. You got that house. You, you were able to actually get that thing you wanted, and how do you feel? Good for a little while, and then back to feeling without peace, feeling empty. You got to turn it around and say, my job is to make God happy. Now, what would make God happy? Well, you're in luck today because he put it right down in the Bible. What would make him happy? He said, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like minded. Now, Paul here didn't ask for money. He didn't ask that, that, they, that they would pray for him to get out of jail. No, he's asking that they would be like-minded. And the Holy Spirit is asking the same thing. Like-minded. Very simple. Like, what does it mean? Well, it's, here's the goal of unity. The goal of unity 
is that we would constantly think the same way. Constantly thinking the same thing. He's not just asking them to get along. He wants them to think the same way. One mark of of unity is thinking the same way. And on any team, team at your work, your athletic team, your family, your church, a mark of spiritual unity is thinking the same way. You know, churches today, many churches, they, I, I, I almost, if I was half of a man, I would have courage to do this. And maybe someday I'll get it. To give a three by, five, three, three by five card to every member of the church and ask them, what is the purpose of the church? Please fill that out and give it back to me. How many realize we'd be all over the map? Why? Because we all have our own way of looking at things. It doesn't make it wrong. But here's the, here's the thought. If I get to think the way I want to think, don't you get to think the way you want to think? And if we all think the way that we want to think, there's very little chance for unity. I like to read stories about, uh, about athletic teams. I like to, to read stories about uh, people like Alan Mulally who came into Ford and, and, and brought them all together. In fact, his motto was One Ford and, and how he helped them and, and really sustained them during the, the downturn and the, the recession in 2008 and 2009. And it's an amazing story of how he, al- he got people aligned with the same directives and so forth. There's a book called The Boys in the Boat, 1936 Olympus, uh, Olympics, where they were uh, rowing crew together. And these, these farm boys from Washington State and how they ended up winning gold at the Olympics in Berlin. And, and, and you can, any, any sports movie... Uh, you can't have a good sports movie unless you have people on the team who don't e- either don't like each other or they don't like the coach. I mean, you really can't. That, that's the, the conflict that's needed so you can resolve it and, and everybody wins at the end. It's important to, to point that out. Why? Because it's reality for, for all of us in every phase. We all have our own ideas. And some people think that the Cold War is the way that we're supposed to live. What is that? We mutually agree that we are not going to destroy one another. Wow. What a fellowship. What a joy divine. Our fam- the best we can hope for in our marriage is that we've agreed we won't push that button which would destroy our marriage. <laughs> God has so much more for you in your marriage than that. He does. And by the way, you're, you're not, your marriage is not about you and your spouse. Your marriage is about you and your spouse glorifying God. Marriage is not designed to make you happy. It's designed to make you holy. God uses that spouse to help you grow closer to Christ. And and what happens is uh, people come along and they say, well, marriage is about you. Marriage is about you. And and, uh, so how's that working out for you? Listen, I need some girl time. I need time with the boys. How's that working out for you? I'm not saying there's anything wrong with with spending time with your friends. But listen, if you desire more to get away from your spouse than to be with your spouse, something's majorly wrong. If you're just going along to get along, it's not going to last very long. So that's a marriage. We obviously are not going to talk about that today. Icy chill came over the room. Right? It's reality. Hey, listen, on your job site, how many people could come to your job site and say, 
This is, what this is why our company is here, and I'm on board with that. <laughs> what do most people, why do most people come to work where you work? To make money. Guess what? The love of money is the what? The root of all evil. So we, we, we don't come to church to make money. And that's good. Amen. But, but the problem is when we come to church, sometimes we think, I've got my idea of what a church should be. And here's, here's the next level. We could have 10, 20, 30 different answers, all from the Scripture, and it may not even really synchronize together, because at the end of the day, what's the most important thing in church? Well, the most important thing in church is seeing people saved. No, no, the most important thing is reading the Bible. Oh, no, no, prayer is the key to the Christian life. No, no, the, the, no, you, you don't understand. It is, it is loving one another. Isn't it interesting how we could even divide over good things? You know what the Lord says? I'll tell you what make me happy. If you are all like-minded, I, I want you to think the same thing. Constantly thinking the same way. That is the mark of a high-performance team, is they know what the other person's going to do, and they either make up for it or they alter what they're going to do because of what that person's going to do. You understand what, it, as I was growing up, we had an opportunity to play a lot of instruments together as a family, and you begin to learn the habits, uh, the, the, the idiosyncrasies of others, and they learn yours, and you're able to work together. We don't have the same personality, we don't have the same attitude, we don't have the same way of looking at things, but what we can have is we can each have our individual minds controlled and regulated by the same person the Lord Jesus Christ, through the same words of the living God. We're going to look at two passages of Scripture. Are you ready? Let's look at 1 Corinthians 1, 10, and Romans 15. 1 Corinthians 1 and Romans 15. Back to your left, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, and Romans 15, 5. This is a theme that's repeated over and over and over again. 1 Corinthians 1, 10, Now I beseech you, brethren... What's another word for beseech? Beg. I'm really intently asking you this. I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak, what? The same thing. And that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Any carpenters here that use a joiner? What's the purpose of a joiner? To take two pieces of wood that naturally were not together and make it look as if they were meant to be together. You put them together. Join them together. He said, I'm asking you to do it. That ye be perfectly joined together. Now look at Romans chapter 15. Romans 15. How can we do this? 15.5. Now, the God of patience and consolation, remember he mentions in Philippians 2, consolation in Christ. The God of patience, aren't you glad he is the God of patience in your life? I'm thankful he is in my life. I've wasted months at a time, months at a time, not following God. Sometimes years with very little interludes between them. Wasting my time doing my own thing. And God has been patient with me. The God of patience. And consolation. He also gives me consolation, even though I have tried his patience. 
He's a very good God. Romans 15, 5. Now the God of patience and consolation grant you, this is something he gives you, to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like-minded, same mind, same judgment. What does this mean? It's certainly not something where we all become the same person. Because if we're all the same person, there's no need for unity. Unless you, you, know, unless you want to count the inner struggles that we have with ourselves. If we all think the same way, automatically we're going to move in the same direction. Unity is the quality of being one. You might think of it as oneity. In Spanish, what's the word for one? Uno. Unity. It's the quality of being one. These things are not one, but because of Christ Jesus, they become one. They lock in together. They say people begin to look like their pets over the years. That's a scary thought. We have a wiener dog. <laughs> big, big ears, low to the ground, and very demanding. Right? Why? How is it possible? We project our image on that which we tolerate and allow in our lives. It shapes us and we shape it. When you're talking about people, people begin to look and act. Sometimes you'll see folks who've been married for a long time, they begin to look and act and say and talk the same way. It's because it's the quality of becoming one. And you can't think, and why, it's why it's so difficult when, when someone loses a spouse after so long. They have become one in so many ways that now half of them is not there. We need to be praying, we need to be supporting our widows and our widowers. The quality of being one. I want to show you a picture of some conjoined twins. Krista and Tatiana Hogan. This is picture. Now, this picture is, uh, is, is not photoshopped. It's called, uh, they're, they're, they are what is called craniopagus twins, joined at the head, very rare, one in 2.5 million. Most of them, the vast majority, did not survive more than 24 hours. But they did a CT scan of them very early on. They said there's no way we could ever separate them without serious injury or death. So uh, Tatiana and Krista, they share the senses of touch and taste, and they can even control one another's limbs. I, I, I didn't want to show you a video because you wouldn't be able to think about anything else through the rest of the service, and, and, and it's, it's a little bit upsetting just to, just to see it. But, but Tatiana can control three arms and a leg. Krista can control three legs and an arm. And they can also switch to self-control of their limbs. Their mom says when they were little, they used to try to pull their heads apart. They were little tiny toddlers. And she always told them, you're stuck, so you have to work it out together. You're stuck. As they've gotten older, they, they still fight. They have frustrations. And sometimes they say they don't feel like being together. Now, now, any kids here that think like you're trapped, 
<laughs> you don't have any idea what it's like to be trapped. Imagine being joined at the head to someone else. But, but Tatiana says, they ask about, you know, do you like, and Tatiana says, she's annoying. She's a real sister, you can tell. You can't be a real sister unless you can say, she's annoying. And sometimes it's the way you say it, annoying. It's like, so annoying, right? And you can hear her, she says it in the video, it's great. Uh, the twins say they know one another's thoughts without having to speak. They call it talking in our heads. But even though they have this unique connection, they remain two distinct people. Tatiana is talkative, outgoing, and high-strung. Krista is quieter, more relaxed, and she loves the joke, but she has a temper, and she can be aggressive if she doesn't get her way. Isn't that crazy? Okay, now I'm going to remove the picture for now. Because I, I want to talk about this, and you can have that, that image, and you can look it up if you like. The Hogan twins up in Canada. I think they're 16 years old now. He tells us here what, what unity is. He describes it. He says there in Philippians, back to Philippians chapter 2 now. Philippians chapter 2. Fulfill ye my joy that ye be what? Like-minded. And then he describes it. He said, having the same love. Having the same love. Having the same love. We both love the same way. And we both would have the same love towards the same person. How is that possible for me to love the way? Because here's the thing. There are people that I care about deeply. And there are people that I barely tolerate. Same for you. Anybody else like that? I'll wait. <laughs> Get off your high horse, you Pharisee. <laughs> Having the same love. Here's the, here is the something we need to redefine in our minds. Christian love is not about strong feelings, positive emotions, or warm fuzzies. Everybody in the world has that. Who do they love? They love people who love them, people who give them what they want. They, they love, he said, you, you give to somebody of whom you hope to receive. You ever invited somebody over the house and then like looking at your clock like, when are they going to invite us over? They've never invited us over. That's the last time we have them over. <laughs> kind of makes you realize why you had them over to begin with. Having the same love. What is Christian love? Christian love is charity. It is me deciding to love you the way Christ loves you, expecting nothing in return. It's not about how we all think the same way about sister so-and-so, in the sense that we all have the same uh, desire to hang out with her, or we all admire her in the same way. It's not exactly human in that way. It's saying we all would give whatever is needed for her benefit. We love her the way Christ loves her. Not based on how we feel about her. Based on what she needs, more specifically based on how God loves her. As, as unusual and unnatural it is for those twins, and we look at them, we think, how could you ever live that way? I'm telling you, this passage of scripture is more unnatural than that. It's supernatural. 
There ain't no way you and I are going to live this way in the flesh. He said, I, my prayer, this is what I want you to do. If you want to make me happy, have the same mind. Have the same love one toward another. What we vow in marriage, that we're going to be together for better or for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, forsaking all others, keep ourselves only for the other as long as we both shall live. Anybody have a semblance of that in their wedding when they got married? You know what that means? We know when we sign up for marriage, it's going to be rough. Now, maybe you didn't know that. Maybe you said the words and didn't realize it was actually true. But some of you have experienced great physical struggles, trials. Some of you have major financial problems. You've had problems interpersonally. And you look at that and you say, well, I thought marriage is supposed to be fun. No, when you signed up, you said, I'm going to love them whether I'm rich or whether I'm poor. Whether I'm feeling great today or I'm feeling horrible today. I'm going to love you regardless. That's why we talk about the ring being a symbol of love. It's unending. There's no starting point. There's no ending point. When you put that ring on, what you're saying is, I'm going to love you like God loves you. I ask, pray tell, what did God get out of us that was so great? I don't think he really got a whole lot. And if you think he did, you don't know a whole lot about God, and you don't know a lot about yourself. God didn't get a whole lot out of us. He didn't do it for what he got out of it. He did it to bring glory to himself. The description of unity says it's having the same love. Love is about giving, not getting. Each believer ought to love others without being concerned about the reaction, the return. I told you it was tough. I told you it was t- it's impossible. Why? I don't care about you that much. Now listen, I'm not, that wasn't me as pastor, okay? You be careful, people. I knew it. <laughs> as a human being, you know who I care about? Myself. And you say, well, I, not me. I care. Yeah, you care about other people because of what they can give to you. And you, you get, you've gotten a lot of traction out of being the nice person because that's how you get what you want. The Bible says, no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it even as the Lord of the church. We naturally do it. Even people who commit suicide do it for selfish reasons. They want it all to stop. They, they want what they want and they can't figure it out, so they take their life. It's a, it's a horrible, terrible, tragic thing. We all are genuinely selfish in our core, and only the love of Jesus Christ can change that. And it has to be applied on a regular basis. We have to go back and look at it. He said, having the same love. And then notice, he said, being of one accord. Being of one accord. In Acts chapter 2, we found that the disciples were all assembled. They were, with, they were assembled in one accord in one place. Now, how many realize it's possible to be in one place and not be in one accord? You know, one of the worst things you'll ever have experience, at least for, in my perspective, is spending a lot of money to have a special time together with your family or with your spouse and, and having that time be completely miserable the whole time. Now, I don't expect you to say amen, just as the old preacher used to say, just nod your pointed head. <laughs> Why? 
Because we don't want to admit that we, you know, we could be in that. And you, you're, you ever have that situation where you're at a place where, come on, it's Disney World for crying out loud. You know how much money we spent to get here? We're going to be happy if I have to break your neck. <laughs> May not, that's one of my favorite pastimes is watching people mad at one another at Disney World. I'll tell you this story again just because it's so funny. One night at Disney World, uh, it was exit time. Everybody was leaving the park, and they all go like rats off a ship. They all jump off. Now, we were trying to find a special way to get out. So we're kind of sneaking along by the side there on Main Street, and the sea of humanity is going past us like a flood, and we're inching our way around. And here comes a couple and a guy and a a woman. The woman was pushing. No, she was in front. She was blazing a trail in front, just going at it like this. And he's pushing the stroller behind her. And he's obviously mad at her. And he, he comes right by. I said, while he comes by, he says, I'm trying to be Christ-like. Christ-like. As he went by. It was classic. I'm telling you. And I was like, amen, brother. That's what we're supposed to be. But I'm telling you, at that night, at that time of the day, forget it. You can't be Christ-like at Disney World at exit time. It's too much to ask. But what, what is that? It's, it's not just being in one place. It's being of one accord. And that word accord, you'll never guess, it's connected, same like courage, right? Courage, what is that? It's the heart. In French, what is the word for heart? Some of you know. Cour. It's talking about the heart. And he said being of one accord is, is, is being joined at the heart. We want the same thing. You can be here at this church and not want the same thing as everybody else. Hey, church, we've learned that it's possible to have a bunch of people in a building and not be like-minded, to not be of one heart. You've learned if you've been married for five minutes, it's possible to love somebody with whom you do not share a mind. But the goal, the the aim is to be like-minded. Not to be necessarily, to, to one of us gets rid of that mind, is that we, it's the process of coming together continually on purpose. Not the Cold War where we decide that we're not going to kill one another. No. It, it is a place where we come together and say, we are going to follow the written rules, the guidelines. We will agree to these guidelines. You know where to find those guidelines? Right here. That's how you have a happy marriage. That's how you have a happy home. That's how you have a happy church. Unity is having the same love, being of one accord. You know what happened? When they got up there, they were all praying. They were all waiting. And the Holy Spirit descended in the form of a dove. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost. I guarantee you this. When they left there, they went out preaching Thousands of people were saved. You know what followed? Joy. Joy. They were so joyful, the Bible says, that they were willing to suffer for Jesus Christ. And they counted it. They were happy that they could suffer for Jesus. They had so much joy that even though they were beaten, they were imprisoned and then beaten, they left saying, thank you, God, for letting us get beaten up for you. That's how much joy they had. Hey, it's the same type of thing. You've ever been through a difficult day at work? You ever been in a big athletic contest? 
or you or have you ever gotten beaten up because you were defending your girlfriend? At the end of that, though your body is worn out, you feel exhilarated because you know you did something good. What is that? That's what God wants for every believer. He wants us to be of one accord, striving together, he said in chapter 1, for the faith of the gospel. Number, th- number three is being of one mind. We go from being of the same mind to having one mind. We saw Tatiana and Krista Hogan's brain there. It's connected by what's called a, a thalamic bridge. It connects the thalamus of, of one brain and the other. There's, there's some type of bridge. When the neuroscientists look at it, the, 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 uh, the little brain doctors, they looked at it, the neurologists, there we go, they looked at it and they said, what is that? Like they were geeking out over this thing, this bridge between their brains. Because they, and, and they show how the one girl's eyes are closed and they'll, they'll, they'll hold up something, an object, a little object in front of the other guy's, girl's eyes. And the girl with her eyes closed says, I see this. Now only one of them can do it. She can see with the other girl's eyes. Not very well. But what she can do even better is feel. So she can close her eyes, and this girl over here, they'll touch her nose. They say, what am I touching? And she'll say, her nose. What am I touching? Her knee. She literally can feel what the other girl is feeling. Why? Because of that bridge that's connecting them. It's a crazy thing. It acts like a switchboard, and they use it as a portal. A portal to be able to access the other person's sensations and feelings. It's, it's almost too much. But, you know, we think we know everything, don't we, as humans? I mean, girls like that can't even survive. But here they are, 16 years of age. Isn't that what God's trying to do with you and I? You know what? That has to be very uncomfortable. It showed them going to the uh, refrigerator to get something to drink. They're, they're both walking like this over to the fridge. They take out the milk. We like cherry syrup in our milk. And they're, they go to sleep like that. They, they actually ride uh, down snow-covered hills in a toboggan somehow. They ride a specially made bike, all with their head craned like this their entire existence. I don't know about you. I don't think I can really handle that for very long. What if you had to? You see, the process of unity in a church is two people saying, I'll do whatever God wants me to do, not what I feel like doing, even if it hurts. Unity is not hard until it hurts. Unity is not hard until somebody says, this is ridiculous. But God has set some in the body. God wants us to be perfectly joined together. Because our individual wills have the capability of saying, no, I want what I want, we spend our lives constantly separating things that God did not intend to be separated. He intended us to be together. God did not intend for people to have multiple spouses. Amen? He said, therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, shall cleave unto his wife, and they too shall be 
one flesh. That's what God intends. Now listen, because of our human nature and life, things happen of which we are ashamed of which we'd never wish that we wish that never happened, but they did. Where are we? Here's what we do. The Bible says, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the marks, the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I don't know what you did in the past. I don't know what happened. I don't know if it was your mistake, his mistake, her mistake. It was a nightmare. Okay, where are you today? Let's come to get together today and say, I will humble myself to the mind of Christ. And I will trust that you are going to do the same. You know, when we have this time of worship, you know what we're doing? We're not listening to one another, thank God. And there's times for that. Testimony time, what a blessing. Each of us are humbling ourselves individually to our God. That is how you achieve unity. Look at Philippians chapter 2, if you would again. Philippians chapter 2. It doesn't mean that we're a bunch of robots where no one has independent thought. Nobody has their own emotions. That's not what it means. Look at Philippians chapter 2. Being of this in verse 2, like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. It means that my mind is made up that I'm going to live under God's control for your benefit. And your mind is made up that you're going to live under God's control for my benefit. I am humbling myself to this mind. Which mind? Verse 5, the mind of Christ Jesus. So we saw the resources for unity. We see the request for unity in verse 2. And then lastly this morning, verses 3 and 4, we see the recipe for unity. The recipe for unity. This is where it gets fun. <laughs> Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. By the way, strife always... Is connected with some vainglory. Strife is me against you. Vainglory is I'm better than you. Strife, or, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Are you ready for the recipe for unity? It's two parts. Number one, I must believe that you are better than me. I must believe that you are better. Is that what he said? He said, let each esteem other. Now, the word esteem, we think of this, the word esteem as meaning um, of high value. It just means like estimate, to estimate something. If you estimate something, is it high or low? Could be either one. It's the, it's the process, it's the, manner, the means by which you establish what its value is. To esteem someone is not to say, I hold them in high regard. To esteem someone is to value or judge that person. How do you esteem someone? You don't esteem them by, we say now, holding someone in high esteem. But the scripture does not use it in that way. It uses it as a verb. To esteem, to estimate, okay, to value. I'm supposed to value you higher than I value myself. Now, that's not to say, I believe that you have done more than I have done when I know that you haven't. That would be a lie. 
It's not to say that I think you are just funnier than I am when it's not true. Or I think that, that, that you have, that you are, uh, uh, are somehow prettier than I am. And I look at that and I are, you know, better looking and I think, wow, you're just the best. Per-. It's not about that. See, there are, there's room for, uh, there's room for reasonable understanding of facts. Okay. It's not about you being better than me or me being better than you. I am supposed to esteem you better than myself. That, that's, as I said, this is impossible. But what's the, what's the alternative? If you're not better than me, there's only two options. One, you're the same as me. Or two, you're not as good as me. And the very few people in the world that we would look at and say, they're the same as me. We all kind of instinctively line up. If you, if I were to say to this group right now, um, let's all, let 20 people stand up and come up to the platform and line up according to height. It would take roughly 30 seconds. People instinctively know who's taller than them and who is shorter than them. And we can line up accordingly. The problem is when we bring that into the spiritual realm, what we end up with is we're using the wrong measurement stick. You're better than me, I'm better than you. That's the wrong measurement stick. I should esteem everyone else better than me. In what way? Spiritually. Spiritually. How is that possible? You know, I can look at you and I can say, you should never have done that, you should never have done this. But one thing I can't do is read your mind. I can't read your mind. I, I like to think that I can read your mind. Look at your attitude, your, 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 your actions. And I say, oh, I can tell what you're thinking, but I can't. You know who I can tell who, what, what is being thought? You know whose thoughts I can read? My own. Have you ever thought about your thoughts? Can you honestly say that you know your thoughts are of higher caliber than the thoughts of other people? No. You can say that your actions seem to be better, but you can't say that you know what other people have done, what other thoughts they have. Here's the thing. When I think I'm better than you, I'm not including my habits that are sinful. I'm not including the things that drive me downward to the earth. The only thing I'm including is the good stuff. I'm including uh, my length of time of being saved, how many times I've read the Bible, whether I've been uh, formally educated in the Bible, whether I have uh, worked this job X amount of time, whether I've bought a house, whether I have a car, two cars, how many kids I have, and how well uh, they have turned out. These things we judge one another with, right? But you know what you cannot understand is what that person is inside. How can I esteem you better? I can take a quick look in my own heart and see the struggles that I've had. I know those are true. It's not a question of whether I struggle with them. It's an absolute certainty that these are things that I have a problem with. I don't know what yours are. And it would be wrong for me to imagine that I know what's going on. Do you want anybody else to do that with you? I know what you're thinking. We sometimes say that, but the truth is we really don't. We make a guess. It's a shot in the dark. You know how you can esteem others better than yourself? You can look at yourself. Look at yourself and say, Lord, 
I'm not what I should be. And if you look over and say, but they're not what they should be either, you're making a really big judgment call. You don't know how God is dealing in that person's heart. We we live in a culture that's so afraid of judge not that we almost go to the other extreme and say, no, you better judge. Be careful. This, This is the judge. God is the judge. If we're going to get along together as as believers in the body of Christ, we have to learn to think, I don't know what your struggle is, but I know what mine is. I can easily esteem you better because you don't have the struggle that I have. You say, well, I'm I'm better at them and this and this and this. Yeah, but what about this? Well, you know, God has grace. Well, why don't you have grace towards them? Right? See, this is how you esteem others. Not by looking at a list of accomplishments... But look at a list that includes your failures as well, your struggles. And I can tell you this, when, you real, when you're humbled before God because of your sin, the last thing you're concerned about is everybody else and their sin. That's how we work together and come together as believers. We recognize that God's been gracious to me. And because of that, I can be gracious to you. If we're not careful, we become like that servant who is forgiven 20 talents and he runs out and he says, 2,000 talents, he comes back and he says, hey, you owe me 20 pence, pay me that thou owest. We're exhilarated by being forgiven by the grace of God, so we use that exhilaration to go out and demand it of other people. Hey, take a chill pill like they used to say back in the 80s. Calm down. Recognize that God's been gracious to you. Stop looking around. Look up first. Recognize who God is, humble yourself, and then recognize as you go out that God has his own pipeline dealing individually with every single one of those believers. I can easily forgive you when I think about how much God has forgiven me. That's the number one. He said, let each esteem other better than themselves. And then secondly, verse four, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. I must be more concerned with your needs than my own needs. The key to full joy is to stop looking on your own things all the time. Stop saying, here's how I feel. Here's what I want. Here's what I think they they should have done or what they shouldn't have done. You just stop saying that. You need to stop saying, well, what about my needs? What, what, what about what I expect? I mean, isn't it at some point I've given so much, isn't it? He said, look, not every man on his own things. But every man also on the things of others. He's not saying be a busybody. He's not saying get wrapped up in other people's lives. Some of you are going, I'm doing pretty good with that one. I'm on Facebook every day. I'm looking on other people's things all the time. No, that's not what he's saying. What's on your agenda must need, most needed in my life? I need my spouse to start paying me some attention, or I I need some money. I need some respect. I, I need some time. I need some stuff. Whatever it is, scratch that list and say, what does she need? What does he need? What she said, you should stop saying, here's what I feel, here's what I want, and start saying, how can I be of help to him or her? How can I minister to that sister or brother in Christ? What can I do that would make their life better? With no strings attached. 
You know, Pinocchio didn't like having those strings on him, did he? He, he finally was able to say, I'm a real boy because I'm not being controlled. Well, then stop trying to control other people with your actions. Stop trying to make them a puppet, a marionette. Just, just let them give to them, even though it hurts. Let them be blessed because of you. Look not every man on his own things. So I want you to stop and think about it. Who has God placed in your life that could use some encouragement? That could use some help? Who in your life could you be a blessing to? That is what creates unity. Because I'm telling you, if every person in this room somehow was able to think of another person in this room that they wanted to be a blessing to, it would be a surprise to see other people caring about us. It makes you realize how unworthy we are of all that we've received. Because we all care about what we care about. But when somebody else says, I care about you, it will drop your jaw. It will humble you. Why? Because it is a Christ-like attribute. In fact, he tells us there in Philippians 2, verse 5, how this mindset is even possible. He said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ did not come into this world demanding that people treat him the way he should be treated. He was despised and rejected of men. He was a man of sorrows, and we esteemed him not. He was acquainted with griefs. He was lied about. His mother was lied about. His words were twisted. His motives were called into question. He was called a devil. He was called a blasphemer. He was beaten. He was nailed to a cross for you and for me. And he didn't turn to his father before he left and said, Hey, uh, father, if I go down there to earth and do all this stuff, and we've agreed it and I've, I, I, I want to do it, what's in it for me? What do I get out of becoming a man? No. Jesus Christ, on the eve of his crucifixion, knelt in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he said what? Not my will, but thine. He exemplified this. The only way for you and I to understand this passage of Scripture is to allow the mind of Christ to be in us. And if you will do that, and I will do that, God will bring us together in a powerful unity against which the world, the flesh, and the devil cannot stand. Not my will, but thine. Let's bow our heads in prayer.